0: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned to the MC Lars Podcast. Amazingly, we've made it to episode 50, and this week we got Dan Bull. And the intro I use every week on my podcast is from Julius Caesar, which ended up going on the Dewey Decibel System, which Dan Bull ended up being on, which ended up being a music video on his channel, and we ended up getting 50,000 views in like a week, which is pretty awesome for Shakespeare rap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to kind of blow up on YouTube like that. So thank you, Dan, for being on this week's episode, for doing the song and the video. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But this week's episode is brought to you by the following Patreon supporters. Ian at A Real Records. Ian put out my greatest hits on CD. Thank you, Ian, Diane, and Rexy T. Jones. Those are some of the new subscribers. And some of the old ones, Brady, Mike, and Damien. Thank you all for supporting the podcast, the music. I dropped two new songs a month. I don't know if... You knew that, but there are 82 songs on Patreon. And if you sign up, you get all the old ones, and then you get two new a month. And I'm doing a series coming up on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm going to do each of the characters, story about each. So it's kind of like a special Marvel album on Patreon. So patreon.com slash mclars. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a comment. Please leave a review. Please log into your friends' iTunes accounts. Leave a comment, leave a review, because it helps the podcast Grow. So I'm reading this great book right now. It's by Ross Anderson. It's called Pulling a Rabbit Out of a Hat, The Making of Roger Rabbit. And it's an amazing history that goes back and talks about Disney before the project came into the studio, how they made it. It's a very long book with tons of interviews, and I love it. So as many of you know, I'm a huge fan of that era of Disney animation and that era of Hollywood and just the story behind that amazing movie. So I really love this book. I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of it. And it was actually published by uh, University Press of Mississippi. So it's kind of like an academic journal. But the dude, Ross Anderson, he wrote a piece about Roger Rabbit for Disney's magazine, D23, which is their fan magazine. And so they asked him to write a whole book about it. I'm loving it. It's been a great summer. My wife is a teacher, so she has a summer off. So we've been all over California. We're going hiking, going kayaking. I've been working on music I've been getting ready for these tours coming up. Oh my gosh. So I'm touring this fall in the U.S. East Coast with Aquabats, West Coast with Oakley Doakley. So let me tell you some of the dates. Start September 11th in Indianapolis. Then we go to Chicago. We play the uh, after party for Riot Fest. Detroit, Buffalo, Charlotte, Richmond, Boston, Asbury Park. And then we end the 20th in Brooklyn. And then I go out with Oakley Doakley. It goes on October 4th, San Diego, then Costa Mesa, which is like Orange County, then San Francisco. On my birthday, Holler, October 6th, then Bellingham, then Port. that's Washington, that's like up towards the top of Washington, then Portland, then Seattle, and then we go over to Denver. And then I don't have anything going on, but I play New Year's Festival in Monterey. Enough about that. You are tuned in. I'm sure there's a lot of new listeners this week because Dan Bull has a very big audience and I want to talk about my Dan Bull stories Very quickly, I'd heard about him years ago. A promoter for Glasswork, a UK promotions company, played me some of his stuff when I was over there. And I was like, this dude is great. And Dan doesn't really play many shows. His first show he ever did, he played with Akira the Don, who DJed for him. And Akira was actually the first internet interview I ever did in England when radio pet fencing came out, which is crazy small world and akira opened for us 2011 with MC Chris and weird Science so it's a very small world but Dan's stuff is smart, it's funny it's well produced his videos have just gotten better and better and uh, I asked if I could interview him because I did a we'd been in touch over the years he'd heard about me because a friend of his this guy Mr. Shadow opened for me in Oxford and Dan thought that was kind of cool and I thought that was kind of cool too Shout out to Mr. Shadow. Uh, he had a great YouTube video called Are You Stupid? Anyway, so we had been in touch. You know, it's like one of those things where you're mutual fans. And I did a tiny short verse for his Fortnite song where he had 100 different rappers. And then I asked Dan if he would be on our Julius Caesar track. And he killed it, so to speak. He plays Cassius. And um, then we were, so we did the interview. And then we were like, we should do a video because he has this like really cool video setup. He produces other artists. He talks about that in the interview, how he's like enjoying working with, Newer, younger artists, and got a great reaction. Now, shout out to Nick J Henderson, who kind of does all Dan's videos, works with him, helps to manage Dan's career, and helps with the content flow. And uh, Fresh Nut Media, shout out to them. So this is my interview with Dan Bull. We filmed it in Birmingham. He was a little sick. I edited out some of the sniffles, and you know, I usually edit out the like things that slow the podcast down. There was nothing very slow about this. We have a funny story about Goldie Looking Chain. We take this long detour to talk about language and the Vulgate and Latin and Anglo-Saxon and French and how that all influences everything and his last name is origin. And then we bring it back to Goldie Looking Chain. It's like the funniest detour of all time. But Dan, thank you for being on the podcast. You're a great dude. I hope we can do more stuff and uh, enjoy. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with legendary rapper, YouTuber, artist, Dan Bull, here in Birmingham,
1: England. Hello, Dan. Hello, and I'm here with legendary artist, YouTuber, rapper, MC Lars, here in Birmingham.
0: Hello. Hey, <laughs> thank you for introducing me. That's sweet. <laughs> uh,
1: I'm ill, by the way, so um, there may or may not be lots of coughing in this, depending on how good Lars's editing is. Well,
0: I've heard your lyrics. They're definitely ill.
1: Hey. <laughs> That's one of the <laughs> oldest puns in, in hip hop, right? I, I know, I know, I know.
0: Um or yeah, oh yo, his verse was sick. We should take him to the hospital.
1: Yeah. Again and again. I've heard that in so many different tracks. I think uh, I'm guilty of using it.
0: It's like a trope. It's like a good pun or a good play on words that are like, yo, my rhymes so deaf, you can't even hear me. Yeah. Those are it's like it's like it's like the blues progression in rap, right? Like right. certain tropes are timeless. <laughs>
1: yeah. They make you feel comfortable and safe. You know you know what zone you're in. And it's like a base to work. And then, and then the more abstract and weird lyrics can come back to that safe zone. You only, yeah.
0: That's what I love about your music. We're diving right into it. You are a true fan of hip hop. You're not, you don't do it as a novelty. You don't do it as like strictly as a parody. You are someone who loves hip hop and you're a fantastic rapper. And like, that's, I think, what a lot of your success comes from, your respect of the craft. Would you agree?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, used, to, I used to listen to rap when I was a kid, I remember like, I, I didn't have CDs or anything, but the, the, whenever it was on in a movie or something, I would think, what's that music? That's really cool music. I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. I think the first, the, my first memory of any rap was, have you, have you seen um, Robin Hood Men in Tights? Right. There's a weird scene in that where his merry men all come together and do like a-, a Hey, nanny, and
0: a ho. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I
1: was like, I don't know what this is, but I really like this. You know, that's Dave Chappelle leading the rap no way really yeah yeah. i did not know that i did not know that well i I gotta thank dave chappelle then for for kickstarting my love of this this genre um
0: that would have you would have been what like like six or seven when that came out
1: yeah i was i don't know my exact age i I was a kid and um yeah so and then i think i got into i started getting video games and one of the games that had a really good soundtrack was the first um grand theft auto game Mm. did you play that yeah yeah yeah. so so, and and weirdly all the music in that i think was actually made by like uh by a guy in scotland who was just on the on the team um of rockstar games or dma or whatever they were called back then um but he like made some really authentic sounding music in loads of different genres and that i was so inspired by that and i think that was a, a huge influence on me to get not only into rap but like edm which it wasn't called edm back then i think it was just mm-hmm. called dance music but i used to like things like um fat boy slim chemical brothers the prodigy i used to any anything really that just had cool sounds and break basement beats jacks. And i liked basement jacks yeah. yeah basement jacks were a little bit more in the direction of kind of clubhouse music right but um they were really cool as well because they just had so many different sounds and influences i think when i think i like music that sounds like um a melting pot of different things that have all been thrown in, and maybe they shouldn't fit together, but they right. do. Um, <laughs> I, I, because I grew up in a town as well, a, like a very white town, a very middle class town, and most people just listened to kind of indie rock music, and that it was okay to me, but it didn't really get me excited. And I just heard this this weird music from America and from a cultural background that was nothing to do with me, and it was it was kind of exotic and exciting, and I just I just really liked that. You, did you grow up in the Midlands? Yeah, yeah, I grew up not far from here. So the, 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 we're in Birmingham now, which is like the second biggest city in the UK. And my mum's my from Birmingham, but I grew up in a small town just outside called Bromsgrove. It's just a sleepy commuter town. It was. It's actually really nice, but for a, someone growing up, it's kind of boring. There's not much for young people to do there.
0: Well, that's what's interesting, Dan, like about the, talking to people who've discovered hip-hop. The cultural history of hip-hop is that it was created by these people who were kind of geographically... Marginalized and socio-economically marginalized Like in the Bronx in the 70s Where it was like removed from everything So they were creative and created their own culture, right? Right And putting their influences together And it seems like people or Yeah, anyone who's who's really can appreciate hip-hop Is anyone who has kind of a different perspective Or comes from a maybe geographically removed place Or you know, an outsider kind of perspective, like that's the stuff that seems to uh, at least resonate with me. I
1: feel like, that, you know, I'm like you, would you agree? I, I think so. Yeah. Cause I, I, I especially always felt like an outsider. Cause I, I'm on the autistic spectrum, which I didn't know when I was younger, but I always was just felt kind of a bit like an alien compared to everybody else. And, and so, um, but with, with autism, it's a, it's a huge spectrum of conditions or, or, or uh, symptoms where it can range from, very low functioning to high functioning and i i think i'm only i i don't have proof or evidence of this but i think that part of the reason why i really like words and why i'm really good with words is because of that because i've always been into like long weird long sentences and words and phrases and wordplay and the way they interact and interlock together and i think when i heard rap and especially some of the more complex rap that that i started to hear in the late 90s Eminem was one of those which is, is probably a cliche that Eminem got a white guy into rap but he was you know his lyrics are amazing uh and I heard that kind of thing and just thought this is this is it kind of lit a fire in my brain mm. um what was the first Eminem record you like fell in love with I used to listen to a, a radio show called um I don't know what the show was called actually the, but the DJ was called Tim Westwood I don't know oh, if right. you've heard of him yeah um uh, and he had like a hip hop show every, it was every Friday night. And I used to listen to that. And then this track came on called My Name Is by this guy called Eminem. I didn't know anything about him. I didn't know he was a white guy or anything. Um, I knew nothing. And it was just, it just sounded like a cartoon that had come to life. Right. But with all these kind of crazy, complicated rhyme schemes and weird, silly voices and punchlines. And I loved it straight away. I didn't know what it was, but I, pressed, I remember pressing a chord on the, t- on the, cassette tape that had ready for tracks that i liked yeah so that one got like i recorded after the first 10 seconds i had the track and kept replaying it was it the
0: version that had like um there's like the radio version the album version and there's that super like filthy one that came out oh it was it was the cleanest of clean versions this
1: was the bbc of
0: course (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) Yeah. so tim westwood was one of the first people over here to premiere
1: m&m then you think probably i i can't i don't know if he was but i know that um there are some amazing recordings when Eminem and uh, Proof both came over on tour and they, they did like some really good freestyles in Tim on Tim Westwood's show. I think they're probably on YouTube. And I was listening to those, and it was amazing. And I don't think I realized at the time, but they're, they're now like heralded as some classic freestyle performances. And I just heard them when they were on the radio and just thought, you know, this is how good rap all, always is. But obviously rap is, like, that's some of the pinnacle of... of hip hop performance there.
0: I remember those those freestyles and like his um Tony Touch freestyles and stuff like downloading those on Napster and everything. Oh yeah, it yeah. It was part of the the mythology of him because you're right, it was freestyling but it was such a high caliber. It's like having a Hendrix bootleg in the 60s. Like this is rock.
1: Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. This is rap. <laughs> yeah. It was it was just raw intense performing and it, and it was so unlike everything that was on the radio at the time. That you'd, that you'd hear. I think at the time, you'd have things like, I think the Spice Girls were still big then and boy bands were massive. Right. And that was just something so completely different. I was just drawn to it. I didn't think about really the the cultural or the socioeconomic aspect of it. I just really liked how it sounded.
0: And that is the thing about like any rap that crosses over into that pop sphere, a good song and a good story kind of transcends all of the... Um, cultural history and everything and like that's what's interesting to me about youtube is that if you have something that's visually interesting you're telling a good story the production is great you can kind of build an audience in in, in, like being on your own planet and like here you have you've built this studio here where you're talking about maybe producing other artists and bringing in other content creators like your own sphere where it's something you've created geographically and, and spiritually on your own terms and that's kind of cool to me
1: yeah I, I, I mean I'm amazed that all this kind of thing has, has sprung out of YouTube not just for me but for as, as, a, as a kind of cultural phenomenon because I remember the very be- beginnings of YouTube when it was just another website it was kind of a, almost a gimmick it was like hey there's this website where you can upload video files and other people can watch them Right. and at the time like it seems obvious now to look back and go well that was obviously the future of entertainment but at the time I just remember thinking, oh, that's a that's a cool gimmick. Like you'd look at, you know, when you look on Reddit and people post a site and, and it's an interesting gimmick. YouTube is just another one of those. Yeah. And I the reason I got into YouTube was because I, I used to just put all my music on, I think it was called mp3.com. Um yeah. and that got shut down. And I so I needed somewhere else to put my music. And I thought, oh, I guess I if I just put like a still picture. Uh, over the top and then I put my put my songs on YouTube they can sit there instead and then it kind of that is how my career gradually built out of that because I went from going well oh, I don't I guess I could have more than one still picture I could make a little slideshow and then I made like some music videos which were little slideshows and then I thought I could I could do actual video and so it just it just it just you know it came out of that and then YouTube kept getting bigger and bigger and just as a result of me having been on there for so long I think I get got more and more views YouTube was also a destination that people went to to find content. I don't think that happened as much with MP3 hosting sites. Like Only real hardcore music fans would go to those sites and try to find underground music, whereas on YouTube, people were on there to watch funny cat videos, and then somehow they'd stumble across your music. So it's a great way to to build an audience, especially for someone like me. I, I've, I don't like performing on stage. I think I've done it like three live solo performances and I've hated it so I haven't been able to build an audience like that by touring and stuff so the internet was amazing for me for that
0: do you um? Do
1: you, were you on MySpace or were you kind of after that I was on MySpace yeah. yeah yeah I think everyone was on MySpace yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> it's interesting that what you said about mp3.com that like imagine if mp3.com and MySpace had fused and figured out a way to do video hosting how that would have become the like destination place the fact that YouTube took a chance on this experimental medium that, of course, back in the day was very pixelated and the site was clunky, but they were... what? Like, weren't there other video hosting sites back in, like, 2005 or not really? There
1: may have been, there may have been, but I the only one I really remember is YouTube, and I remember it being important enough that people were, were talking about YouTube. I mean, I can't remember anything before that. And I do remember downloading videos from online where people would kind of host a Windows Media Player file, on their right. own website but that obviously is not scalable whereas YouTube was, was scalable from the ground up
0: so what, w- what would you say was your first video where you're like oh wow my audience is like growing and might continue to keep growing massively
1: uh, th- the first video I, I made that had some kind of success or, or response outside of people I personally knew was one I made called Generation Gaming and it was a song about the different consoles I'd had over the years and that was that was literally the only gaming song I'd planned to do. I didn't think that gaming like music based around gaming and geek culture was even a thing. I don't think I knew about nerdcore rap or anything. It was just you know i'd do i i in my head it was like right, I'll do a song about relationships, I'll do a song about football I'll do a song about gaming, and it was just going to be that. But that video got kind of ten ten times as many views as any of the other things I put on there. so that was when I kind of realized, oh so geeky like my geeky side of me is actually something that people enjoy listening to and and I I, I imagine you, you in your development as an artist you probably went through a phase where you thought you had to present more of like a tough guy kind of image because of that's what hip hop grew out of but then I realized I can actually I'm a lot more comfortable in this zone of being kind of a nerd and a slightly weird guy and just pr- and and presenting that side of myself to people and when I started to do that there was a lot more people that I guess that related to that, um, so I did some more things like that. And um, another song I did, probably a couple of years later, that got exponentially more views was a song about um, copyright, and it was a song called "Dear Lily," and it was to, it was a song aimed at Lily Allen, who back then this was ten years ago now, amazingly, but back then she had she'd written a long blog post about copyright infringement and how. The, I can't remember exactly what she said but it was about protecting the rights of artists and things and, and how plagiarism was really bad and it had then come out that she had plagiarized this article where she was condemning plagiarism and it also wow. came out that you know she'd built her career on releasing mixtapes where she'd used commercial instrumentals which is a common thing that people do um, f- fair enough but she, she built her career up on that kind of unofficial unauthorized mixtape scene and then Condemned any kind of copyright infringement. Um, so I'd made a song calling her out on that. And I made a, a kind of, I didn't realize at the time, but it was really kind of an innovative video where it was just the video was me typing an email to her. So I typed out the song as if it was just an email in like prose format and he just started typing along with the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. And I uploaded it and I emailed it to a couple of tech journalists because uh, I, I wanted to see if, you know, if anyone'd been interested in it. I went to bed. I got up the next day and the video had eighty thousand views, which and this was in two thousand nine when YouTube wasn't that big, and I was like, "Oh my god, what what on earth is happening?" And my phone was just buzzing and buzzing and buzzing, like all my inboxes were full. It was insane. And then I thought, "What have I done?" (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I guess that was when I realized, when I really realized that music for me could be more than just a hobby or something that I really wanted to do. It it was really something that was of value to other people. Um, and that kind of kick started after that happened i got I ramped up my uh, productivity and just kept making more and more videos and It was almost like a drug I was chasing trying to get get right. you know the next thing that would draw people in
0: or like a video game you 're always trying to level up right like yeah yeah it's, it's if I found people like you and people like Mega Ren and people who are very good at gaming and making music they approach social media in that way. And that's, that's like,
1: has made you guys very successful. Yeah. Yeah. It's called gamification. Have you heard of that, that concept where people apply systems that are in video games to their life? And it, and, and it's actually a really kind of positive and motivating way to achieve things in real life and achieve your goals. If you, if you structure things like, you know, you've got a quest list to do or, and there are different apps and things that let you do this. So you can, and, and you can assign scores and points to different things that you want to achieve. Um, that works really well for me, especially because I have this kind of hardwired autistic brain where everything is about yes, no, numbers, lists, and things. That works right. so well for me.
0: Right, like uh, it's almost like it was created for for your art, right? In yeah, a way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many Dan? <coughs> excuse me. How many hours a day do you spend doing creating content versus marketing it? Like, what's your daily breakdown?
1: I think it used to be, this is an interesting question, actually, because I think think hardly anyone in the world has this balance quite right, because there are are amazing people who spend 100% of their time making incredible music, and no one will hear it because they don't even show it to anybody, or they're not marketing it in the right place, and then there are other people who barely have any music, or they haven't really got good at music, but they spend all their time promoting it, and begging people to retweet it, and, and I think you need to find a space somewhere in between there. I always thought that space was 50-50, like you'd spend 50% of your time making music and 50% marketing it. So that's what I used to do. As my YouTube audience grew, I got less into doing the marketing side of things because I thought, well, I have this subscriber base on YouTube now. I don't need to market anything, so they'll just watch it. Yeah. But I think I've actually kind of neglected that and I need to get more into thinking, every time I release a new track, what journalist will be interested in this? Or like... Uh, what celebrity influencer might be interested in this and can i show it to them can they show it to their audience i think it's a really vital tool that people often neglect or do in the wrong way
0: and it's interesting how you know i always i often on this podcast talk about nirvana as a as a crossroads in music where it was like this last moment where being oblivious to the marketing and the um the mechanisms of spreading music was an asset to them, which allowed their songwriting and performance to have more integrity. And that, you know, like Kurt had took issue when, when uh, Courtney Love bought Alexis, he was like, this is not reflective of the punk culture. Like we, we have this money, but it's like a sin to, to level up in that way. You need to like keep yourself insulated by it and not think about the machine and, and not, you know, even though they were hugely successful with, with MTV and like licensing their songs, that, Kind of mentality is is not you can't have that mentality in twenty twenty because or what year is it twenty nineteen
1: close enough because yeah
0: <laughs> we have you have to really be aware of so much content out there, and there's no such thing as selling out really because you have to make all these you have to do anything you can to get your music heard right and it's a different time, and sometimes I feel nostalgic for that mentality, but it's of course it was twenty years ago it's an antiquated perspective and
1: I think there's been a big shift in in attitudes not only of of the creators but of their audiences, especially looking um at it from a YouTuber perspective. I've seen how monetization and branding and things have been introduced to YouTube over the years. And initially people, especially audiences, were really hostile to it. If you did anything where it implied that you were even making any money from what you were doing on YouTube, people would accuse you of being a sellout. Now it seems like Every creator is kind of promoting their merch line they they're doing branded sponsored videos They have all these different revenue streams. Twitch has like six different revenue streams and people are really supportive of the idea that their their favorite creators are making money and profiting from what they're doing yeah I think it's it's almost because because it's not they haven't achieved what they've what where, where they've got to through maybe the help of a record label who's just given them this pedestal to stand on. Everyone comes up from the same level in in YouTube and Twitch, really. So people look at look at that look at a person who's who's up there on a high level, making like huge amounts of money from Twitch, and they think that could be me. So people yeah. are a lot more open to that to that that people, you know, people can exploit every opportunity they get to try and improve and increase their own career.
0: And and knowing that when they help support them and the brands they're aligned with, the money is going to the creator. It's not going to some nebulous label recouping fund. exactly right yeah it's yeah too. like <laughs> but, when,
1: when you used to buy an album from from a record stop uh, shop you didn't know who was getting that money where it would go to how much would be to the artist how much would be to the store how much would be to the label you just you just it just you handed it over but it, you know if you're watching someone on twitch and you're and you're donating bits to them or, or things and, and it pops up on the screen damble has donated five dollars to MC Lars. And MC Lars is on the screen and says, thanks, Dan. Yeah. That you can't really get more direct than that. Right. People and, know exactly where the money's going and they're getting an instant acknowledgement and response from it.
0: And similarly, like if you're engaged with a channel and you comment on the videos, when the creator writes back, you're like, oh, this would have, I could never have talked to, you know, Beavis and butt on TV <laughs> or something <laughs> yeah. like that. I could never talk to these characters. I, I saw in, in a time when there wasn't that breakdown. And that's, that's cool. And it also means – it also means that there's this this then ability for people to create more and consume less, which is always like a motto that I try to like reinforce when I do workshops and with kids and stuff. It's like spend more time making content than consuming all the free content you can, right? Because that's going to make you a happier person I think. You're yeah, yeah. an
1: example of this. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of a delayed gratification thing, isn't it? It's like consuming is instant gratification. Creating, well, you get instant gratification from creating as well, but the, the, the real reward is when you've got that finished piece of work that you've made in, entirely by yourself. I, I, I think there still needs to be a balance between if you spent all your time creating stuff, you'd have, you wouldn't have much inspiration to draw from. So I think it's important to listen to, I tell people to listen to good music and bad music, because I think you could learn a lot from listening to bad, poorly produced music, because you can hear all the mistakes someone else has made. Right, that's true. Which means you don't have to make those mistakes. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> right, or, or <coughs> you can learn from um, good things about bad music, right? Like things that they do well that, that the mistakes are overshadowing, right?
1: Exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's It's almost easier to see good things in a mediocre song than it is to see good things in a perfect song. So if you picked a, like, a perfect pop song, it'd be very hard to work out exactly what makes it so good. Right. Whereas if you heard a mediocre song that just had a really good guitar solo or something, then you can focus on that and n- none of the other things are affecting your judgment of it.
0: So do you still like seek out and listen to pop music or underground music? Is that part of your daily
1: work routine? It's not. I, I wouldn't say it's part of, part of a routine, but I I love doing it. I, it's something I do more when I'm kind of at the end of the day when I'm tired and I I don't want to do any more admin or creation or stuff. And then I'll, I'll open up Spotify or I'll open up SoundCloud or something and just browse around it and see if I can find something interesting. I also often ask my audience for recommendations or I'll, mm. I'll say on Twitter like I'm in the mood for this kind of thing. What do you recommend? Uh, and you get some great recommendations. There's a rapper called Juice World. Have you oh, heard yeah. of Juice World? Yeah. Yeah. And it, um, I can't remember the song. I can't remember the title of the song, but I, it came on when I was just kind of listening to a random playlist of, of new hip hop. And it really stood out to me because it sounded like, to me, it sounded like almost a pop punk kind of Blink-182 kind of song, but in a trap rap style. And I was, I hadn't heard anything like that before. Like he had this cracked high emotion in his voice. I think the song was about being drunk and stuff so yeah um, but it it just made me think like trap trap music like hip hop has kind of moved into this area of really bleak dark trap music and I didn't I kind of couldn't see where it could go from there and I I, I, I haven't been enjoying that kind of thing as much because I like kind of funky grooves and lots of different colourful sounds yeah um, it's really interesting to see the music that's now blossoming out of this new type type of rap that's come up trap which, uh, which is now kind of the de facto hip hop that everyone listens to right um, <laughs> and now it's kind of splitting off into um punk and and all sorts of rock elements are coming in. do you know um akira the don yeah i love him yeah yeah so he was t- he was talking to me about this he said it's amazing to see so many new so many old genres of music are now kind of ha- ha- having a rebirth within rap and hip hop and that's really right. cool to see.
0: Right. Right. And uh, Lil Peep, do you listen to him? Ever? Yeah, yeah.
1: He He's a great example of that kind yeah. of thing where it, he was, it was kind of emo rap, right? And very much, very, very different to the kind of hip-hop that, that was popular in the 90s when I started listening to it where you were just, it was all about showmanship and you were invincible and you were the best. This, this, rappers now are very honest and open about their flaws and their insecurities and their problems and i think that's that's really cool and relatable
0: and the um compulsions to escape whether into like opiates or xanax or sex or things that like this painful scary 21st century has driven them to do you know it's it's interesting too from a psychological perspective
1: I think it I think that's I've I've thought about the same thing and I think it, it maybe it comes from the economic situation of the the world now. It seems like the ba- the baby boomer generation actually had things pretty good. Uh, generation X had things pretty good, uh, but now there's a generation of people who look like they're never going to be able to own their own home. They're always going to be in a kind of gig economy job. They they don't see a future that's much different from their current situation. So I'm not surprised that people are people's attitude is very kind of nihilistic and that and, and that they that kind of subject matter is now coming up so often and people are relating to it.
0: Right, and it's being vulnerable in a way where yeah, the solution is in a lot of ways it's the consumption and creation of art as a something of a higher calling. You know, I feel like in the mid 2000s when I started, it was really cool to be able to like independently you know th- advocate sharing music and write about like topics i was interested in but it didn't feel like the world was in this crazy like decline or stasis or confusion where you know content and media and, and the stories really have it's important it, everything is, it seems much more having inspiration has never been more important i think you know
1: yeah you i know? think i think looking at it at the internet as well it's just this it seems so much more hostile and negative and people drawing lines in the sand and it's either with us or against us um i wasn't like that before and i i I think personally i almost take refuge from that in in just going and sinking my brain into art and creativity and things um i i don't like seeing people consider other people as other an enemy or you know I, i i i don't know where i was going with that
0: (laughs) no well that that art is (coughs) there's a freedom in it right yeah yeah it's more important than ever because i i feel what you're saying people are very divided about everything and it's hard to be political now because you know obviously i'm very anti-trump and i've made that clear like with my album titles and stuff but i don't talk about it on stage and stuff because like some of my fans did vote for him and so it's like it's awkward to be like to have an uh, you know what I mean? People are so divided, so it's,
1: you have to be more careful too. I think it, there's also a difference between presenting your opinion uh, as part of your art or just standing on stage and kind of ranting at the audience in between your songs about politics. I think I'd be I'd far more, if, even if someone had a very different political opinion to me, I'd, I'd rather listen to music about it than just them telling me about it.
0: Make you feel bad? Yeah. <laughs> <at a> show. <laughs> I mean,
1: it's it's like Rage Against the Machine, where were their lyrics are incredibly left wing and uh, b- they're basically communists, right? Right. I think a lot of people would only only listen to their lyrics and them talking about that because it was in the format of the music they did. If Rage Against the Machine was just a, a guy doing doing like. A political music and then in between the songs he'd do all this communist ranting i don't think that would have had the same impact
0: <laughs> or and the, i always thought it was interesting about Rage Against machine is that there was this irony that you really had to use this ma- mainstream capitalist corporations to spread that message but in a way that's that was kind of like um subversive right to use to use record chains and tv and and all these very capitalist um, the mechanism to spread that message, which yeah. I guess is cool, which but it also there's an irony to that, right?
1: Yeah, there's, there's two ways to look at it, isn't there? isn't it? They're either exploiting the system that they and 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 benefiting from a system that they claim they're against, or they're in the belly of the beast and they're kind of bringing it down from within. I don't know, but looking at the various members of Rage Against the Machine now, I think they're all heavily involved in political activism and stuff. So I think their hearts were definitely in the right place.
0: They didn't have YouTube in, back in, like, 94, 95 to, to spread yeah, their yeah. message. Um, what was that story where, like, a few years ago, didn't a bunch of, like, British people helped make one of the songs a Christmas hit, number one hit?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I don't know if you have this show in the U.S. called The X Factor. Um,
0: yeah, I, I've heard of it.
1: Yeah, it's, oh, it's it's probably pretty similar to American Idol, that kind of thing. And And it got to the point where every Christmas, the Christmas number one song, which, which traditionally UK has has considered like really important cultural milestone. The, what, what's going to be Christmas number one this year? Yeah. But every year it started to be whoever was on this TV show, and it was always a very kind of polished, safe ballad kind of thing. Like
0: a Christmas song, typically.
1: Yeah, but but not not like the classic 1950s, like Frank Sinatra and uh-huh. Bing Crosby kind of Christmas song. Just just <laughs> just like a pop ballad. And it was very homogenized and boring. And, and so someone started a campaign to get Killing in the Name by Rage Against the Machine to, to number one instead of whoever was on the, on the X Factor that year. right? Um, and they, they did it. it. It was a big viral campaign and they did it. But I remember uh, at the time I thought, I looked at who the two, um, I can't remember who the artist was that they were against now. But the artist from the X Factor and Rage Against the Machine were both actually on the same record label. Oh. Sony, right? So right. whichever one won, it wasn't really, it wasn't really like sticking it to the man at all. The man was just making even more money from these two <laughs> factions that were determined to stop the other one from reaching number one. It was like divide and conquer.
0: British people, to me, having come here so long, there's there is a lot of rebellion in here, but there's also a lot of uh, maybe you can speak on this. A lot of like practicality, right? We can't overthrow the Parliament, but we can have a rebellious political song for our christmas hit song, yeah right
1: i think there's a, there's also a kind of streak of almost almost self-destructive stubbornness in in britain like we're used to things going wrong and when things go wrong like with the with the whole shitstorm that's happening now with the, with britain leaving the european union no one on either side is happy with it and people get to the point and i think it's a kind of uh british mentality where we think stuff's Uh, stuff's not good right now we may as well enjoy just watching it burn and I think that's that's, um, a really fun attitude to have if you can't you know if if you're powerless to change the the bullshit that's going on you may as well just enjoy watching the chaos ensue
0: (laughs) well it's been and it's been a a a gradual decline in in empire for you guys for quite a bit yeah yeah and so and so then there's this appreciation I feel like in in, in music and friendship and going out in in holidays, in, you know, in family, you know, you guys are, we're, we're, we're kind of on, we're both in a a context where our empires are declining and we're in, we're in kind of a setting sun kind of world. So we can learn from each other by seeing what we find value in, right? I think that's, that's why I love coming here so much.
1: (laughs) I think, I think it's interesting that like every, every empire that's ever existed has had the same kind of. The same story where it where it gets to a certain size and then and then it almost buckles under its own weight and its own arrogance and I think that happened with the British Empire. people just get tired of it uh and i think I think that maybe that's happening with the u s although the u s is the u s isn't an empire in the traditional sense it 's more of like a i guess a cultural empire, and a lot of the way that u the u s has influence over other countries is not they 're not um directly ruling over them but they just have so much influence through culture and through things like the CIA God knows what the CIA do in various countries but I think it's still going to probably end up going the same way at some point
0: point. And that's, and that's why a lot of I mean people who support Trump this idea of building a wall and going inward and cutting off trade is because well we got to protect our own interests but what makes the world a great place is being able to not have all these impositions of the walls and everything. And, and a, a wall, yeah, it, metaphorically isn't going to, I don't know, there's only so much you can do, you know what I mean, with with blocking the world out because the world is going to, people are going to share ideas and people are going to figure out how to overcome that,
1: right? Yeah, I think the first thing that happens with any kind of wall is people work out how to get around it. Right. Like, I, I read a story about the Great Wall of China being Apparently, it was a huge failure because it had taken God knows how many years to build, and, and thousands of people died during the building of the Great Wall of China. When it was finally finished, uh, the barbarians or whoever they were trying to keep out still managed to get through because all they had to do was go to one of the kind of gate areas, and they would just bribe the guards on the gate to let them through, and they just let them through. <laughs> <laughs> the same kind of thing I can imagine, not necessarily you know just a direct bribe, but but. A wall, I don't think, is going to stop something as complicated as the situation that's happening with Mexico and the USA, or you know, the, the, the wall in um, or the, the various walls and border fences that are in Israel in the Middle East. It seems like trying to stop something that is inevitable, rather than working out how to adapt to that situation that's causing it, instead of just putting up a literal wall in front of it.
0: Well, going back to the gamification thing you said, right? Like there's you got to adapt and think in in creative ways and um when someone comes up with an idea like, well, no, this is the way to do it. This is simple, blah blah blah. They will get a lot of support for having that like binary perspective of good and bad and polarizing people,
1: you know? Yeah, I think it's like a, it's a populist view and we're seeing more and more populist politics because it's easy to understand. Not everybody has the time or inclination to try and Look at the nuances of every single factor that's causing, you know, various influxes of immigration from one place to another or something. It's much easier to be told this group of people is bad or this big group of people wants to take this from you. It's much easier to understand, and people get behind that.
0: Right. I, I can. Hum- I can also. Yeah. S-
1: I can see why um, you, you mentioned Trump. I can see like he very much capitalizes on that kind of. Um rhetoric, I guess. He uses very simple words and and he he just describes things as good or bad and you're either with him or you're against him. He doesn't really go into the into the nuances and complications and complexities of things. And because of that reason, people take him at his word and they think, you know, he's he's he makes sense. Regardless of whether what if what he's saying is necessarily true, it still makes sense. Whereas if you listen to someone maybe like Bernie Sanders or or even maybe Barack Obama who were a lot more of a nuanced speakers, they perhaps didn't appeal to that same group of people simply because they were talking about things in a more complicated or nuanced way.
0: Right, a more informed way, I would say, too. I mean, the, tr- the truth is complicated and life is messy. And so, yeah, it's like... I, I guess if, if you're down to talk about this, would you be down to talk briefly about Brexit in a way that some maybe non-British people might it might be helpful for help to help them understand it? Are you down or
1: I can try. I don't okay. I, I, I wanna give you the um I, I wanna tell you that I'm no expert on this and it totally baffles me. Okay. And the reason <laughs> I've actually ha- haven't said much about it online or in music or anything is because I just don't understand it. I Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem is that nobody really understands what exactly is going to happen, or how to achieve it, or what the best result might be, um, and people are entrenched in these two camps now: that the, the pro Britain leaving the European Union and anti, and it's the same story that's happening in America, whether whether you're pro or anti Trump. It's it's those two sides are getting more and more entrenched against each, against each other and seeing each other as as the problem and trying to stop this side from getting what they want and this side trying to stop this side from getting what they want there's no, I haven't really seen any objective analysis or description of what the hell is going on with Brexit that makes sense and that isn't informed by some kind of bias Yeah. Um, so I don't know how to explain the thing, I mean I can explain what it is in a dictionary sense (laughs) but I don't know how to tell you what the implications and ramifications of various things are because I literally as we talk now the, the British Parliament is arguing and, and kind of tearing itself apart trying to work out if Britain's going to leave the European Union, how do we do it? And that they currently keep holding various votes in the Parliament and the, every single vote on every topic is getting struck down by people saying, no, we don't want to do it that way. We don't want to do it that way. We don't want to do it that way. And the Prime Minister is saying, well, what do you want? Um, but the thing is people don't know nobody knows exactly the best way to do it so they 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 see all these options on the table and they think well it's not going to work like that it's not going to work like that it's not going to work like that the problem is everything seems to be a no so at the moment we're just in a big limbo
0: is it because and it's because it's an unprecedented thing right it's never Britain's never tried to leave the European Union quite like this ever have they
1: yeah I think um, I think Britain joined the European Union in the 70s I remember there was a there was a referendum vote and people chose to join the european union over the years people got got, kind of disillusioned with it um excuse me uh people got disillusioned with it because there were lots of stories in the newspapers about how how much money was going from britain to the eu and then and in return it seemed like the eu was just imposing various laws on britain to uh so that that, as it was on all the other countries, so that it would be this common market. So we had things like traditionally, you'd have you'd go to the to the market as in like a small market where you'd buy groceries and things, and things were measured in pounds and ounces, like they are in the US. Mm-hmm. That became, I think, it became illegal because of the EU, and they wanted everything in the metric system. So there were kind of independent greengrocers and market people being being punished and and fined and things for just measuring things in the wrong weights, and that and very. Uh, uh, Over time, these stories about what the effect the EU was having on Britain were starting to make people feel tired and like, what's the point of being part of this? We we don't like being bossed around by people we didn't elect. We don't see the benefit from it. Um, And that kind of just gradually grew to the point where it became this populist issue. Uh, The then Prime Minister of the UK, David Cameron, decided to announce um, a second, or a referendum on whether to leave the EU. I think that he wasn't expecting it to actually... Succeed, because mm. mo- pretty much all politicians wanted Britain to stay in, e- in the EU. Apart from a few kind of fringe ones, and there's a party called the UK Independence Party, or a fairly right right-wing party. They always wanted Britain to le- UKIP, leave. The, right? UKIP, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and so the result of that referendum in I think it was 2016 is Britain uh, voted by fairly narrow margin to leave the EU. And ever since then, it's just been constantly in the news with our politicians and people trying to work out what this means and how it's, how we're going to do it, whether we are going to do it, whether we should have a second referendum and it's just never ending news. And and I, I switched my brain off to it because I thought, you know what? I, I can't do anything about this. I can't even understand it myself. And, just to spend time trying to understand it, I could be doing better things with my life that Although the same year I became a parent, so obviously my my priorities became far more immediate to me at that point rather than the than the bigger the bigger picture
0: because it seems like people, like you said, our British people i 've talked to feel alienated and feel it's confusing and feel like they don't know what the truth is and I think it's how a lot of Americans feel about our current political situation too. We have this in common where we all feel kind of hoodwinked and like our power's been taken from us, and it's very confusing, and it's exhausting. Like, like to think about and wonder about. And
1: it, Your yeah. situation's also un- unprecedented, yeah. right? Because Trump, I, I I think I'm right in saying Trump is must be the first president whose first ever job in politics was president. Like he, <laughs>
2: right. most people right. will
1: be in like local government, and then maybe they'll become a senator or something like that, and then they'll they'll work their way up the ranks, and and maybe they'll run for president, and maybe they'll become president. Trump didn't do any of that. He just went right. I'm running for president, and then became president. It's it's crazy right. how that happened. Obviously, he's entitled to do that, but it, at the same time, it's kind of scary.
0: Talk about Rage Against the Machine using the Sony mechanisms to have their career. I think some people who support him were like, well, he's going to shake things up, blah, blah, blah. It's interesting. We talked about Eminem earlier. One of the only people who didn't respond to was Eminem's like attack on him. Right. That was, that that was like so weird that that then in a way took away Eminem's power by him not
1: even caring. Did did he not respond? No. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah. They, they did a video together, um, Ages ago, Trump and Eminem. He Trump like featured as himself in in, in a promotional Eminem video. I can't. Remember, I think it was promoting the Eminem Show album. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's um, I didn't. know I that. don't know
1: how that came about, but it was either Trump introduced Eminem on stage or Eminem introduced Trump on stage. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously, that relationship has soured somewhat since.
0: <laughs> Are you still going back to Eminem? Did you like? Did you like his last record? Are you still a fan of his, or not so
1: much? Um. Yeah, I, I haven't really been that excited about Eminem for years now. It's just that his music and stuff, uh, his earlier style really inspired and influ- influenced and informed me uh, in getting into like complicated rhyme schemes and very much like syncopated rhythms. So it's not just rapping on the beat all the time. He would like almost dance around the rhythm and things. And his style's changed a lot since then. It's still very complicated and complex and like lots of wordplay and puns crammed in but it's almost it's almost like he's run out of what he can do with with this more f- fluid free flowing style and now it's just about I compare it to guitar players say if you look at Jimi Hendrix playing a guitar solo it's very free and 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 um confident and easy and loose and he does exactly what he wants yeah compare that to someone like say Joe Satriani or Steve Vai, where it's amazing technically, but I don't really want to listen to it because it's just every single second of it is, is just showing off like tapping and and smashing out as many notes and and sequences as possible. I feel like that's the direction Eminem's gone in. So it's very impressive to listen to, yeah. but it's not always very enjoyable to listen to.
0: Yeah. It's like, a, it's like, it's become very academic, hasn't it? And very technical.
1: Definitely. It's, it's. That's, the, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. He's almost, yeah. it's almost like he's experimenting to see how far he can push what he can do instead of thinking about it from the listener's perspective of how he's talking to a listener.
0: Um, You're, I see a lot of guitars around here. Are you a trained guitarist or you play guitar?
1: I'm a guitarist. I'm not a trained guitarist. Yeah. I, I um. got one as a teenager because I just thought guitars were cool. Yeah, I, I As well as being into hip-hop, I was into kind of pop-punk and metal and that kind of stuff. Uh, I still am, but I kind of... I I was in a band as well, and I really, um, as a teenager, my goal was for this band to kind of take off and be really popular, but they had more realistic aspirations and and went into academia and things, and I sat at home still wanting to be a musician. Somehow that actually happened, but I think it was probably... I'm the exception to the rule of, of, you know, the person who who doesn't bother to try and pursue qualifications and, and things and tries to be a musician. Luckily for me, it took off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, we have that in common because, you know, I used to play I used to play guitar in a, a punk band and I was doing the rap stuff for fun. And, um, what was your band called?
1: Matron's Apron. We were, we were a very weird kind of, uh, novelty rock band. I'd say we, we just made really weird, silly songs. In fact, Maybe I can uh, play you one of those at the end of this. That
0: would be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> do
1: you, are you? Would you ever have like a reunion show with those guys? I, I'd lo- I'd love to do something with them again. Yeah, um, but I mean, one of my friends, Rob, who was the drummer in the band, is now a uh, professor of philosophy at Oxford University. Oh, which is very different to being a drummer in a novelty rock band. Uh, they've all gone. We've all gone our separate ways, really. Uh, but it would be awesome to, to hook up with those guys again. Uh, well, maybe <laughs> p-
0: put putting the message out there, get the yeah, band yeah. back together. <laughs> yeah. Um, what, like, what was what were some of your favorite metal influences? Then you mentioned you liked metal. Um,
1: one of the first, in fact, the first album I ever bought. I don't know if it strictly counts as metal, but it was The Offspring Americana, which was definitely itself was influenced by metal. I don't know what genre you call it really, punk metal maybe, yeah, or just punk. But it was it was heavier and more complex guitar wise than typical pop punk um i loved that kind of thing i am um, what else did i like i i new metal came up came around when i was you know at the at a very um at the at the age when you kind of s- absorb everything like a sponge music right. so so i really liked stuff like uh limp biscuit uh system of down i absolutely love system of down because the music's so strange and dynamic and and just weird um mm-hmm. Yeah, I always liked metal that had a bit more of a, a groove to it, rather than just just constant like loud noise and aggressiveness. So, I wasn't so much into stuff like Metallica and things. I was more into things like Pantera, for example, where that guitar Ooh. groove, yeah, it, it, there was a lot more of a groove behind it. Which again ties into I think why I like hip hop, because it was not just constant dum 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 dum. It would be like dum dum. Yeah, like interesting, exactly. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) something like, yeah,
0: like, like what I love about Pantera is Dimebag's riffs had a melody you just could not forget. Yeah, that was special, and that was different than a lot of the rap metal and other metal of that time. What's your favorite Pantera album? Do you have one, Dan?
1: The only one I had and I didn't even, I think I had a pirated version, was a uh, vulgar display of power. That's my favorite. Yeah. So yeah. Good. So I'm not, I won't pretend to be an expert on Pantera, but it was, uh, I remember hearing them and just thinking, this is my jam.
0: Well, so I meant, I wanted to ask you this. When you were, you're a few years younger than me, and um, when you were um, listening to music and getting into rap metal and stuff, did you have any awareness or appreciation for like ICP and the Juggalo stuff? Or was that kind of like... That fringe for you
1: my only my only awareness of them came through the references of the Eminem made to them in his songs because he had a feud going on with them at that right. point point. <laughs> and then I think, I, I think that was about the same time I got Napster or Limeware or one of those file sharing services and I think I downloaded some ICP but it might have been like live bootlegs or something and I didn't think much of it I didn't explore it any further
0: they didn't really tour here much. That was more of a regional American kind of thing, the Juggalo stuff.
1: Yeah, I get I get that impression. I'm not sure if it's something that would translate so well to Britain because I think they that it. I don't know whether this is fair, but it looks as if they're the, the gimmick that they have with their makeup and and their personas. They take that very seriously, and in Britain, we don't really like people who take themselves too seriously especially with like a gimmick like clown makeup and stuff right like i think i think insane clown posse if, if their music had been a lot more ironic and self-aware and kind of nudge nudge wink wink would have done better in the uk but from what i've seen of them and their fan base especially they're ride or die it's <laughs> that's serious true. that
0: binary we're talking about earlier like, <clears throat> like that um all or nothing right yeah um were you? What did you think of Ali G and, and all of that, his his thing, talking about like wink, wink,
1: nudge, nudge, irony? I loved Ali G. Ali, yeah. Ali G became like a pop culture phenomenon here when I was about 12, 13 years old. Ironically, I didn't realize that it, he w- was a character. I thought he was actually like this guy that was shaking up the system and interviewing all these old fuddy-duddy politicians and stuff. <laughs> Only later I realized he was a character because well, I just grew up a bit and it became obvious that, that uh, that's not a real person. Um, he, funnily enough, he was based partially on Tim Westwood, who I met mentioned earlier, the DJ. Oh, um, Tim Westwood uh, get, gets a lot of criticism for... He's basically very upper middle class and very comes from a very privileged background. I think his dad was like an archbishop of some kind of church or something. Um, but he used, to, used loads of hip-hop slang and kind of had a weird forced accent mm. from God knows. I don't, I don't want to make any judgments about him, but he got, he got a lot of criticism for that. And I think Ali G was based on that. Like someone who thinks that they are something very different from what they obviously are.
0: Right. Right. Well, there's someone who, who always thought it was funny that like he wanted to be part of hip hop culture so much. He was unaware of like the silliness of, of like, Oh, you don't like me because I'm black or stuff like that. Like, <laughs> yeah. like his, his, so offensive, but but coming from a place of well, he just really loves the music, and he doesn't have his own culture of his own to connect with. Yeah, yeah. Were you a fan of Goldie Looking Chain? And I asked this because some of their first U.S. shows I opened for them, and like I always wow, I always lo- have loved them. But I don't. No one in the U.S. really remembers them.
1: I'm so glad you asked me this question because yeah. I, I um, Goldie Looking Chain is one of the bands I discovered on just through the internet. I can't remember quite how I found them. I think I was probably I was desperately Googling for like. UK hip-hop and stuff because it, it wasn't easy to find that kind of thing back then.
0: Do you want... Dan, and Dan, for <coughs> for people who maybe don't know who they are, how would you describe them?
1: Oh, you see, it, it'd be more easy for me to describe them to a British audience, but there's a whole extra cultural barrier to have to get to to describe <laughs> them through to an American audience. Imagine I were British.
0: How would you describe... I've never heard of them theoretically, so how would you describe them to me? And uh, then I'll make the translation for an American... They oh, are a bunch
1: of w- Welsh stoners <laughs> pretending to be a bunch of Welsh chavs who are making uh, hip hop in a kind of Wu Tang clan posse style, but about Welsh chav stoner lifestyles.
0: Right. <laughs> yeah. So there's three. Uh, <laughs> so Welsh. So those. Are- <coughs> <laughs> Those of you listening, Wales is a another country within the UK, on, yep. on the western side of the <laughs> UK. And um a chav is what we would call uh a chav is is in America would be well you could probably find the, the American equivalency.
1: What would you say? Uh the closest thing it would probably be you'd probably call a redneck, but uh they're not necessarily rural they look, quite often they're from towns and cities like an, an urban redneck i'd say
0: or like in australia they say a bogan a bogan mate yeah yeah <laughs> but but they wear track suits and like um have a lot of hair product maybe wear 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 jewels and gold maybe fake gold and so that's the goldy looking chain right that it might not be a gold chain but it looks like it that's yeah. what i always thought the name came from
1: you know what i didn't i never thought about that i just <laughs> thought that was a weird name but that makes perfect sense yeah
0: and then there's and they often love hip-hop and in the uk often they love american hip-hop because and and stuff like i guess roots Manuva and and stuff like that would just was is mike skinner from the streets would he be considered a chav or no or does he play with that trope
1: uh, yeah, I think he—he's probably like he's probably from a more of a middle class background. I—I I don't really know. I know he's from very near here. Actually, he's from Birmingham. Um, uh, he—he's not a ch- chav in, in as much as the stereotype of a chav, is kind of an aggressive idiot that's in a, wearing a tracksuit. But he—he he did kind of present uh, a culture that was closer to that, like going to in in his rap, he would talk about like going to raise and taking pills and and kind of lifestyle on a on a boring like housing estate in in a in a city and stuff
0: going to Mickey d 's and all that yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: exactly like just that the you know the everyday man would do rather than some kind of glorified glamorous lifestyle. What's great about the streets
0: is the storytelling and and the melodies and the musicianship. I guess we could talk more about about him in a minute, but like. Are, is chavs associated with football hooliganism
1: or no? Um, that's a good question. I think football hooligan, hooliganism and chav. There's probably a Venn diagram where they cross over, right? But <laughs> football hooliganism is more of like an organised hobby that that people seem to do. Um, I don't get it myself, like. But there's a, there's a whole culture around that different factions. That, and that and it, what's weird with football hooligans is, is that the leaders of various gang, gang factions are actually in touch with each other like on phone and stuff oh almost like friends and they organize to meet up and fight each other it's very weird oh but, so they'd be like my boys will meet your boys in the alley at this time or behind the stadium yeah <laughs> it's 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 all very organized it's almost like a, a shared hobby <laughs> it's, it's really strange to me um but cha- a chavez is more of a well first of all it's it's kind of frowned upon as a as a way of describing people because it's kind of it's classist. Yeah, right? it's it's classist. Um, yeah. ch- Chavs are usually from like a, a working class background. They'll have grown up with not m- not very many opportunities, maybe b- bad educational opportunities and stuff. And um,
0: what's Dan? What's the etymology of the wor- word? I heard it's like an acronym, but I
1: I, I I don't know. I don't know. And I know I know that in different places around the country they're given different names. Like right. in in Bromsgrove they were called Kevs. And then I don't know why they were called Kevs. I guess Kevin. I don't know. Oh. In in Glasgow in, in Scotland, they're called Neds, which is sh- an acronym for non-educated delinquent. Oh.
0: Um, I, I heard this, and I, this I'm sure this is wrong. That the origin is, and I would n- never say this, but the origin is council house associated vermin. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. It it's might be horrible, That though. might
1: be a backronym.
0: A backronym. Yeah, right, yeah.
1: Right. I don't know. Okay. Um, I know that. I know that. Um, also I think ch- like I I used to see a lot of people that look like stereotypical chavs about like 10 15 years ago. I don't see that anymore.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know say. why that's
1: why that's happened whether it's just a change in fashion or or attitude I I have no idea. Well the
0: chav culture's been gentrified maybe. Yeah, <laughs> because everyone can go to Primark or buy their different clothes so they don't look like they're part of that.
1: Yeah, it could it could almost tie in with social the rise of social media and um you know, the culture of showing off and stuff. All this, I maybe maybe because of that, fashion and things. People became a lot more aware of fashion coming from different places and hairstyles change, changing and things, and and almost accelerated the changes in fashion.
0: And famously, Burberry discontinued making the the hat, right? The Burberry hat, which
1: really? was a I didn't know that
0: that then the became a knockoff, like part of that. Um, You know that was like a part of the uniform. You'd see that a lot—the Burberry, the fake Burberry hat. Yeah, yeah.
1: It it, it sounds bad, but the stereotype was pretty accurate. Like, not not so much now, but I remember just like if you'd walk through town and you'd see you you would literally see gangs of people standing like on a corner smoking together or something, and they'd be wearing an Adidas tracksuit and a Burberry hat and probably if you looked at them, they'd swear at you or, or try and start a fight or something. Like the stereotype didn't come from nowhere. Right. Not that I'm saying it's fair on everybody. Well, it, and it kind of feeling like maybe,
0: I think this is how America and England are different. I feel like sometimes you might, you might be able to school me on this and correct me if I'm wrong. The institutionalized class structures make it feel like it's not as mutable here. If you're born into a, a certain life, it's very hard to become a, professor of philosophy at Oxford or something, or to become a prime minister, this idea of the American dream where like Herman Melville would talk about this, that it's this ennui that people suffer from that, oh, even a milkman could ideally be a president one day, like this infinite expansive like possibilities. In the UK, like you talked about earlier about watching <laughs> things burn, there's like, well, this is the way things are, you know, uh, it's unlikely if I am grew up in a council house that I'll be the, a prime minister, so I'll just accept my fate and so there's also maybe some disappointment with that
1: i think people are more more entrenched in their um their, you know the, the background that they came from and i i heard i don't can't remember who said this but it summed up a really good uh it was a good summary of the difference in attitudes between americans and british people and they said that one in a when, when a an american person or like a poorer american person sees someone drive by in an amazing sports car uh, revving the engine and, and, and showing off the car that person will go that could be me one day and in Britain if, if a poor person saw someone in that car revving the engine on a corner or something they would say wanker
2: <laughs> it just sums
1: up the whole attitude like we, uh, we don't we're, we're more into kind of being proud of the, the situation that, that we were born into and that our family are in and I don't think there's we didn't have the American dream like I think because Britain uh, – America is a fairly new country and, it, and right. it, was, it was just a land of unlimited possibilities whereas Britain's just grown out of this ancient history where there was always – there were always peasants and there were always noblemen. And I think even the situation now is still just a c- c- continuation of that. It's not as obvious but it's still there.
0: So you're saying it's this feudal class structure that is ancient in a way it could be i yeah, mean i yeah. I,
1: it, I don't know if that's true but i can imagine it, it might well be because there's never been and an, an, there's never been a massive revolution in the uk um uh, in the same way as america has where everything's been reset there was there was a time when the the king the monarchy was overthrown for a while by oliver cromwell uh, but then the monarchy came back and then mm. before that it was in the year 1066, which is, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before America even existed when the Normans invaded. I don't think that, and also that was still, you know, that was still kings ruling over peasants. So Was that the Battle of Hastings? I yeah, mean, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. And then
0: what happened? How did the Normans get kicked out or, or, or did they just become part of They
1: just Britain's- became, yeah, part of Britain. And that's, right. uh, you can see a lot of that legacy in the English language. Like, most of the English language is a mixture of G- Germanic, Origin words, which is from the Anglo Saxons, who came from Germany, and uh, Norman words, which are French words. And what's interesting, the, the class thing still applies through the language as well. If you hear words of a Germanic origin, you will think of them as more kind of guttural or earthy than if you hear words of a French origin. And and have you heard the reason why why meat has different names and why that why the names sound different for cooked meat and for 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 the animal or the raw meat there's no this is interesting tell me yeah so if if you think of um if you think of the names of like various animals like say sheep for example sheep is a word it's not a french word um it's the word that the anglo-saxon peasants would have used to describe the animals they were farming but then the words like um Lamb, I think I might be
0: wrong here. Filet mignon, or that's meat, that's beef, I guess. Yeah, that, that's yeah,
1: yes. yeah. So, so the 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 nobleman and the, the the Normans who had conquered Britain would only refer to the animals as the, their cooked versions because they'd have it presented them and cooked. So that now we have the name of of cooked meat is all usually French words, and the name of the original living animal is a Germanic Saxon word. So those things wow. still still kind of echo down through generations and still affect us now
0: based on what and you are what part of appreciating the noun of this animal you're on reflects your class and your connection to it yeah yeah that. that's
1: interesting man yeah that's a good thing to know what i are, don't know whether lamb is a french word i probably used the wrong example but it's i i'm sure people if they're interested in that and the etymology of those words will be will, they'll be Able to read them out online and stuff.
0: Well, what's a what's a um, very Norman word versus a very Germanic word that are like that you use typically? Like, what are two examples of, of obvious words that
1: have that you can think of? Um, uh, how, how are we allowed to swear? Yeah, sure, sure. So originally in Britain, the the common and it was it wasn't considered rude or obscene or anything. The common word for the female genitals was cunt. You just say cunt. Uh-huh. my cunt hurts or you know you, you just say cunt it wasn't it wasn't a swear word it, it was um, that was what people said and then the, and I, it, it became considered vulgar and vul- the word vulgar even it doesn't necessarily mean rude vulgar was used to describe poor people and uneducated people so uh-huh. you can see how common it Yeah, means common right? yeah, yeah yeah so cunt was a vulgar word used by vulgar people oh, i.e. Okay. common people and over the years that became you know we don't say that word because vulgar people say it and it just it amplified into we don't say that because it's obscene and and the vulgate means like the common vernacular
0: right that was maybe like,
1: I don't know yeah. um, but then like obviously the word vagina comes from I think vagine or something which <laughs> is a French it's a French oh, okay. or, or, or um, a Latin word yeah I think it means sword sheath as well, which is really weird.
0: <laughs> right. I remember, I remember an a ex-girlfriend would talk about this, how like that then was an, an act of like disempowering women to be like, well, your noun is something that has no agency. It just sheaths the male sword. Really? And that,
1: that is like a institutionalized sexism or something. <laughs> it could be. I don't know. I, I don't know how much of that was, would, would have been intentional or, or unintentional, but I can see how that, could be the case
0: so that is and so now saying that word is you can't ever say that on the radio because it's this changing of of how certain things become like a bad word
1: right? yeah what's interesting as well is you when you hear a word you you don't need to know the etymology of it you can almost feel that it's maybe an, an old germanic or like a viking norse word or or whether it's a french latin romance word you just kind of feel it there are a lot softer and different kind of syllables and sounds
0: Well, but as someone like you and like me who have made our living out of our love of words and language and wordplay and understanding words, maybe we're more sensitive to it than someone who isn't so interested in this stuff. Because I could talk about this stuff with you all day. I love the origins of words. And like, you're right. You get this sense of, oh, that's a word from this culture or last names, you know. Oh, that's this kind of name. That's this kind of name. That's like. Words are awesome because they, they carry the entire weight of human history
1: i love I love um, Scandinavian last names, which is like uh, Anderson, which would literally mean the son of Anders
0: my real last name is Nielsen i don't know if you' know oh, that. right yeah yeah and, and it's s-E n because it's Danish so every time people always want to spell it S-O-N, but it's the son of Neil, you know, generations ago. (laughs) it's
1: that even with your spelling, it still means the same thing. Yeah. Because it's
0: the Danish version of it. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting. So Sen in in Denmark is the son, it's son in Danish, I guess. Sen.
1: Yeah. So my, my surname's Bull. Uh, People are sometimes surprised that that's my real name, but my real name is Dan Bull. I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Some people say like, how did you come up with that name? And I say, I didn't, my parents did. (laughs) 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 Um, but but I'm pretty sure that's, that sounds to me like it's probably like an Anglo-Saxon word bull rather than a French fancy word.
0: What is your family's origin? British? Yeah. 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 I
1: I looked at my ancestry and, um, I did, I signed up to one of those sites where like it pulls everybody's family trees and you can kind of see, you can go really quite far back by sharing your data with other people. Did you send in any DNA or I did that as well, but that, 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 is less of a family history and more of like an, almost like a race history, I guess. Sure. Um, it yeah. goes so far back, but my my family history appears to be everyone was just based in and around the Midlands of Britain. So, no, okay, <laughs> no real ambition to move, no, no social mobility. Um, they were just mostly peasants and farmers and farm laborers. Um, some, some people went off to America as lots did, but obviously yeah. I'm not descended from that side of the family. I'm descended from the ones that stayed here. People
0: first came to Britain when?
1: Again, I don't want to talk as an expert on this subject, but I I think that humans have been here since since prehistoric times. Yeah. Um, and I know that during the ice age, Britain was separate. Well, it, even when Britain as a landmass was separate from Europe during the ice age, people could just walk over the ice from France to to uh, the UK. R- right. Right. Yeah. Um. And so, so before the Romans, I think there were various groups like um, Celts and uh, druids. P- pits, druids, yeah. Um, uh, and 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 back before then, there were there were Neanderthals living here. So it's been a mm. long time of of human um, settlement. Yeah, in Britain,
0: and that's why there's no like some of the bigger animals or or bears and wolves were all killed because they couldn't coexist with humans huh? i guess so
1: yeah I don't, there aren't many natural uh, I, I don't think there are any wolves in britain maybe there are like the the, the place where you're most likely to find big animals and predators and stuff is way up north in in the highlands of scotland And i guess that correlates with there being fewer humans that's interesting <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> well okay so
0: wait we diverted off this, but um, Goldie Looking Chain, <laughs> 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 I was thinking about how you talked about how That was an amazing detour. <laughs> talking about the human history of Britain and how sometimes some of like the, the sadness or the f- like, I don't know, you guys use hu- humor as a way to deal with a lot, of, a lot of the rubbish things in life, right? And like the thing about Goldie Looking Chain is like the amalgamation of all these tropes, these British tropes. It fits in a, in a very funny way, but it's very distinctly some regional, you know. But I I love both those records a lot, and I just wanted to hear about your connection to that group.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I before before they got signed or had had released those records. Interestingly, most of the or, or maybe even all of those songs on those records are are remade like polished studio versions of the ones that I used to listen to. Oh, I didn't know I f- that. I found their website by googling it. I think I can't remember exactly how I found them, but straight away i was drawn into it because it's because they were funny like they they're not great musicians but there's so much personality and charisma and just just you can tell that when they were making that music they had so much fun and it just shines through and you have fun when you're listening to it yeah it was very raw and like not the best production quality or anything um but i just fell in love with them straight away and it was also like at the time I was really getting into smoking weed and that kind of thing. So that's what I used to listen to. Goldie Looking Chain rapping about smoking really cheap, cheap like soap. I think it's called soap soap bar hash. You know, like it would cut co- you, you. Not many people or uh, teenagers and school kids would would smoke actual weed. They'd smoke this like blocks of hash, and so they'd make songs about that. And I'd never even heard like. <laughs> In American hip hop, no one talks about that kind of yeah. thing. They talk about smoking like chronic and stuff. And is so, hash like a future?
0: It's like connected with t- tobacco, or it's just like the hash is, It's
1: a. It's just a cannabis resin that just comes in a brown block. Okay. It just looks like sort like clay. Actually, it looks like yeah. clay. Um, I I haven't smoked weed for a long time now, so I'm I'm behind on like what's what's popular in, <laughs> right in weed culture now. But that's that. It was really interesting to hear them talking about like. Picking out bits of rubber that were that had been put in the hash to make it way more and stuff. Yeah, um, it was a very unglamorous description of kind of a mundane lifestyle in a in a fairly inconsequential Welsh town.
0: And uh, a lot of the language, like your missus is a nutter or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You're, it's like yeah, I'd have to look up what that meant.
1: They had a, that whole s- whole separate slang over there that like I I didn't understand half of it, but that was part of the joy of it. Again, it yeah. was it was. This weird, ex- new exotic world that I could that I could kind of dive into and, and try and work out what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And me and my brother like used to just constantly talk to each other in this Welsh accent because <laughs> of we'd been listening to Goldie Looking Chain. <laughs> I won't try and do it now because I, I can't really remember how to do it. But um, did you ever meet them? Have you ever met any of them? Uh, I've seen them live, but no, I don't think I've ever met any of them. Are they still producing stuff, or they all kind of went off? I think. I imagine they are. I think the whole, as a whole, it was never a, a defined group of who exactly was okay. in it and who wasn't. It was kind. Of, there was probably like a bit like with the Wu Tang Clan. You got this like core nucleus of the RZA in the middle, and then his closer associates, and then it just sort of like Maggot was one of the guys, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I don't know how many people are actually in the group, but I'm, I'm sure some, if not all of them, are still doing stuff. And they would used to play festivals here and stuff. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I saw them at V um, the Festival. And there was a, the crowd was absolutely packed for them, and it was yeah. just it was just a bunch of guys just jumping around on stage. Funny enough, I saw the Wu Tang Clan, and that was exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're both really good on the same festival, not the same one, oh. but it's it's just funny how that they're like two parallels of the same format of entertainment. Right, <laughs> that's how I would describe them. The the, the, the
0: Welsh Wu Tang Clan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, you're a father now. Yeah, yeah. And you have a two-year-old son? Is that right?
1: Yeah, George. He's nearly three, actually. So, wow. Yeah.
0: How has fatherhood changed you as an artist?
1: I always was a very disorganized and chaotic person, who, um, and I reveled in it. I reveled in being able to do what I wanted when I wanted. I'd just wait for inspiration to strike, whether it was at, like, 4 a.m. in the morning, and then I'd just stay up until 4 p.m. writing and working on the same song. Like, And I thought... That's how you had to be as an artist because you were almost um enthralled to the the muse and the muse would strike at any time and then that's when you have to work. I also just enjoyed it. I loved like I, I even in my in my last album I had a song called Sell Out, which is where I was where I was kind of saying explaining why what I'm doing isn't is not a sellout. Like making money from doing what I want is what I always wanted to do. And and the chorus was like never having to work a nine to five always being my own manager so i love the freedom of it what being a parent did was made me it brought me outside of myself and realized that you know i'm now responsible for and beholden to another person who is is dependent on me to be um a reliable carer and a, and a provider and things so i was forced very quickly to get out of that mindset of doing what I wanted when I wanted, and having to structure my creativity and the creative process, slotting things into a timeline and things. It was really tough at the beginning, but I'm actually very glad that I was 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 forced into doing that kind of shift in mindset, because now I think I'm far more productive than I was before. I've realized that a lot of those things that I used to tell myself were actually mental barriers. Like To be creative, you don't have to wait for inspiration. I can sit down now and just open up a Word document and put put a beat on. If I'm not feeling creative, I'll start typing, and within ten minutes, I'll be I will be feeling creative. Yeah, you'll have half a verse. So yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So I, it I almost it felt like lots of restrictions and barriers were being placed on me when I first became a parent. But I actually realised that it was almost liberating because I realised that I could still be as creative as before, but just structure it and uh, around my you know my life and my role as a father and you have this
0: incredible studio like youtube's production space audio space right here in birmingham and it's like you're talking about how you get to come here to work and you're able to be super focused right
1: yeah i mean this is an example of why i used the word forced before which sounds bad like being a parent forced me to do this and and that but I, i i was uh i was in my comfort zone recording music at home and everything and I love being at home and, and sitting in my pajamas and doing what I wanted when I wanted right um, It became very apparent very quickly um, if you spend any amount of time with the toddler, they they're noisy and they want attention all the time, and that's not compatible with sitting down and focusing, especially with recording music and stuff. so I realized right I, I'm going to have to be working elsewhere, and my home life will be in one place and my work life will be in another place mm-hmm. um, so that's how I ended up. Um, renting this place which which initially was just going to be my space to to work on my my own music but then um, me and my video guy nick we both kind of realized this is actually would work so well if we we you know invited other people here and collaborated and shared because we're right next to this one of the main train stations in the uk and stuff so that this whole world of collaboration and and just bigger things than just me and my own YouTube channel and my wants and needs has opened up. And I think, mm. A, it's 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 kind of helped me grow up and mature and have a more of an outward approach and look and be more open to things. Like, I, I wouldn't be talking to you here and recording your podcast here if I was still at my house in my pajamas. <laughs> it just wouldn't be happening. It's, I think that's really
0: cool, man. So you're saying that, like, having a kid became this kind of, like, funnel through which all these new opportunities have been... Given birth to as well, right?
1: Yeah, I think I think when you get comfy, you don't really make the most of what you have. It's only when like challenges come to you, and and for me, becoming a parent was was a challenge because partly because as well, I mean, I I covered all this in a song I released called "I'm Going to Be a Daddy," which right. I actually I released April. So we're recording this the day after April Fool's Day. I released it on April Fool's Day. Intentionally, because I just wanted to kind of mess with people's heads. But it was a real song where I said, like, it was about announcing that I that I found out I was going to be a dad, and I was terrified, uh, and just thought all, all my thought process about that. So I gradually. And people thought it was a prank. People thought it was a prank. Yeah, just because I released it on the first of April. Right. Like, I didn't say like I had. I, n- I didn't have any reference to April Fool's Day or anything. I just thought if I'm going to release this song, I may as well release it on the first of April and just see, just see what happens. So <laughs> for ages, people thought. They did think it was a prank video, and then I made another video later where I, where I introduced after George was born. I made a video where I unboxed him <laughs> and um, people were, "Oh, so he wasn't, it wasn't an April fool's joke, or is this also a joke?" And it just people got more and more confused right uh, even, even <laughs> yesterday, someone uh, sent me a tweet and they said, "I'm still waiting to find out like whether or not." You actually do have a son or not
0: <laughs> well, now we're setting yeah, the record I'm straight,
1: like, yeah, <laughs> unless this is all part of it. you might be in on it,
0: dear, when you come to work do you do you leave um does your baby stay home with your partner do you have do you get a nanny or how do you like
1: uh yeah it, um my girlfriend or my partner Caroline, spends so much time with him she's she does she's really great she she puts so much effort in with him um when I'm not here, and I'm not around because she understands that you know. This is my job as well. That was that was also a diff, difficult thing for us to deal with at home. Was the the boundary between am I at work or am I not at work? Can I can I you know can I come and play and help uh, hang out with George or am I supposed to be working? Whereas here it's very simple. If sure. I'm in this building, then I'm at work, and if I'm at home, then I'm then I'm at home. Um, do
0: you when you're at home? Do you try to like not be on Twitter and Facebook and stuff? You put your devices? Oh, no, I'm, I'm
1: terrible. I I'm still on it all the time. Yeah. I, 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 as I was explaining to you, then I just realized that that's not entirely true. When I'm at home, I'm still at work, and like part of my head's still at work. Right. But um, I, I it's still a lot easier for me to then commit big chunks of time where I can just focus on my son and play with him and enjoy that, and not think, oh my my computer's just there. I could go and um I could go and start doing check my emails and stuff. Right. Yeah.
0: Um. You are one of the most though prolific content creators I know, and is it because you? You set like daily, weekly goals for putting stuff
1: out, or you just kind of go for it. My my goal generally is to try and release a new video a week, which doesn't always happen. Some some weeks I don't release anything, or some weeks I end up releasing three things. But Mm. I, I like to go with the one a week thing, which is it's very different to what some creators do. Some creators will release like an album every two three years. Sure, but I I think it ties in with the way I like I like working um i like doing things very systematically with like lists and i like um making things efficient i i almost have like a personal factory system now where i where i have like all these different folders and different songs at stages of completion and i work through them and i tick off lists and and because yeah. of because of my autistic mindset it's really satisfying for me to do that so I, it's almost like i I've, I've always got like 50 different songs in the works and they're all just slowly wo- moving down this list of like I've got a folder for songs that need mixing and a for, uh, songs that need a video or yeah. songs that need an instrumental. Uh, and and s- gradually everything gets pushed through that list. And so I end up being really productive without necessarily intending to. It's just how it happens. It's flow, your yeah. process. And I always have more ideas than I do uh, mm-hmm. time to, to finish them. So it's yeah. never an issue like having something to work on. There's always more things that I need to finish.
0: So the issue becomes when you when you are able to... <laughs> leave this studio right when you come you, the, 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 the finale becomes when you close the door right yeah yeah um do you do a video for every single song pretty
1: much um on youtube yeah we don't don't really upload a song unless it's, it doesn't have a corresponding video yeah but the, one of the lucky things about the the type of music i do is that like for example if it's a song about a game it's very easy to kind of edit together a video just using trailer footage and stuff of the game lately we've been trying to ramp up our production values a bit and so we'll mix green screen footage of me or even sometimes location footage with stuff from the game sometimes we just make an entirely an entirely original video yeah um and we're just trying to mix it up really but so some videos take a lot more of a uh, time commitment than others and some are really easy to do how has youtube changed in the in the
0: 15 years or whatever that you've been on it like have you found it's a different beast
1: oh yeah yeah i am um, it used to be a wild west and very diy and, and production values one of the great things about youtube was that you didn't need great production values you didn't need the best camera and the best lighting um it was all about if you just had something interesting people would would watch it now YouTube has become, almost as a, as a victim of its own success, mm. it's become a lot more competitive. And because it's b- become more competitive, and everyone's fighting for the audience's attention and watch time, naturally those production values are going through the roof. So now you do need good lighting. You do need good sound. You need all that, all that stuff to compete with someone else who's got that stuff. Because if someone else is as, as interesting as a person as you, and they've got great light and sound, and you don't, then they then they're going sure. to get the the audience. Yeah, that's it, partly another reason why I'm interested in 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 setting up the space to help new creators and things because I realise that the that barrier to entry for new people trying to become a, an online creator is probably much higher than it used to be. Yeah, and so having people pitch an idea to me, maybe that they that, and they say I've got this great idea, but I don't know how to do it, or I I, I need this and this equipment. They can come and make it here instead of them having to fork out the money and or save up and buy it themselves. So it's 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 removing those barriers by pooling resources. So what advice then? I, I, you probably get asked this
0: a lot in interviews. Like let's say a, let's say a seventeen year old content creator walking here was like, "All right, Dan, I'm a big fan of your work. What what are the what is a list of things I should be doing every day to try to build a my, my YouTube platform?"
1: that's a good question i think it's probably obviously depending on what content someone makes it's going to be different but what about so let's say they're a rapper who has like a comic
0: book fandom or a you know what i mean something like that
1: um yeah yeah i guess one of the one of the things it would be just to stay engaged with that world that your music is about but if, if you're passionate about that then you will automatically be engaged with it um there's a lot of people who seem to want to make content about something they 're not necessarily passionate about mm. because it's a trending or a popular topic and i I tell people don't do that like pick something that you're interested in, even if it's a very niche topic, and you will become the the expert on that niche and you'll become the influencer on that niche because that's your thing, and you're passionate about it There's also less competition for it, like if everyone wants to make videos about Fortnite on YouTube, for example. Your Fortnite video is not going to stand out amongst all those other ones, right? Especially, and, and if you're not like a, a, a Fortnite player, then uh, this is hypocritical of me because I made a Fortnite, I made a Fortnite song with a hundred other people on it, and it, it, I don't even play Fortnite. Uh, but
0: you, but you, Dan, I think something that is a huge asset to you is that since you're so efficient, you get things out first. When a game is announced or a sequel, you're the first person to do like a great video about it.
1: I I used to be. Uh, yeah not it's not that i've become less efficient but there's a whole there's like a whole new wave i'd say of of nerdcore artists have come up on youtube mm. that now do the do the same kind of th- thing as me and and their music is a lot more reactive and responsive to news and trailers and things that come out yeah and so now i find like if i if if i've if I start working on a song and I'll Google the same, a song about the same topic, someone will have already done it. So I'm very rarely the first person to do it, to do that now.
0: That's kind of what weird Al was telling me about how, like when he would try to do a parody, he'd he'd be like, when he was trying to do mandatory fun, all those YouTube songs, people had already done parodies of so quickly, like thrift shop. And it was like this period went from like 2011 till 20 to now where things just are so quick. So it's like you almost have to have a time machine. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, yeah, it's yeah. That uh, weird Al, Al is a great example of what I was saying. Whereas, you know, he because he almost pioneered that very that niche that he had of doing well produced parodies and remakes of <laughs> pop songs. He could spend time and uh, effort on on making those. Whereas now it's it's. It's almost become again like a cottage industry where there's there's a whole bunch of parody channels and they're all primed and ready to jump on everything. So not every channel is going to respond to every pop song, but but from Weird Al's perspective, whatever he wants to do, someone will have done it before him.
0: Yeah, and and you probably must feel that as someone who raps about games a lot. There's a lot of like you said, nerdcore rappers who do game raps.
1: Yeah, but I've also realized like it's not it doesn't matter like being the first person to do something doesn't matter um it's it's more important that yours is not even more important that yours is the best because it's not it shouldn't be competitive but it's just important that you make the best that you can do it doesn't matter if you make the first thing before someone else it might it might mean that it gets some more views initially but then even if you look long term on youtube at, at content that gets more views is not whatever was published before the other content it's content that people keep coming back to
0: that resonates with the high quality of your other stuff. Like I feel like a lot of – what I like about your stuff is it's funny but you also tap into these truths of the characters you rap about and like the existential crises or the things they go through that. I Like when I'm writing a literary rap song, I try to tap into that side of things and yeah, yeah. I, I, it's really cool how like your your fandom of games particularly has this element that is like, oh – yeah, of course. That's what that character was thinking.
1: Yeah, I really like getting into people and worlds and environments and and that kind of side of things rather than kind of the mechanics of the game. I've made a few songs about a specific game where I've just talked about, you know, say for example, a Call of Duty where it's just I've got a gun, I'm running around shooting people, and it, it's not very interesting to listen to. No. Whereas you know the thing the thing that we did with the Julius Caesar track that was far more interesting because we we're all looking at the motivations and the world that 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 situation right. happened in. So it's really interesting to a from a writing perspective and I hope from a listener's perspective that you're hearing that story.
0: My favorite couplet of yours on that song is uh met caesar on the steps of the senate about to free his neck from the liquid within it. It's so <laughs> tight, that's so tight. It always gets stuck in my head, man.
1: Those kind of lines yeah. I um I have a love-hate relationship with them because it's it's a really forced rhyme like steps of the senate liquid within it they barely rhyme with each other but I like forcing things to rhyme with each other that don't I don't like common rhymes like so many songs where people say like maybe and baby and it's been done so many times girl and world Yeah, yeah I guarantee no one's ever rhymed steps of the senate with a liquid within it or 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 i'm cassius not
0: (coughs) quite not quite as loyal as lassie is that's another one (laughs) yeah yeah that's what that's emily dickinson was the queen of of the compound slant rhymes and and eminem is and rakim like the originators are the people who could make those words work and you know what i mean i think that like yeah you always want to rhyme things in a surprising way and that's why I like you, you as a rapper because it's a little bit like oh I didn't think of it like
1: that yeah I love trying to do that and sometimes it, I'll come up with something that I really like the way it rhymes but then I don't know how it's not really relevant to what I'm writing about and then I think well I guess it could be a punchline to a, like or, or a simile or something and then I have to kind of retroactively work out how this rhyme I've come up with can work really well as a simile Or as a reference. Sometimes it doesn't, so I scrap it. I used to be really bad at just writing shit, basically, just because it rhymed. And I think a lot of people are guilty of that.
0: Well, and then it's the whole thing of reverse engineering your rhymes to then resonate with the coda of your thesis of the chorus, right? Which is like, for me, that's a great question, man. Because it's like, if I want to have a, a complicated reference or some sort of poetic form, like, for me, it's justified if I can make it somehow, you know, bolster the chorus, right? And the chorus often with a lot of pop culture stuff is just your funny take on what the premise is. And the trick is just as long as it's not, I've talked about this with other rappers on the podcast, as long as it's not the Wikipedia article about the game, as long as it's something different, you can, I think, get away with those puns or, you know what I mean, the surprising twist. I think actually they're an asset when you kind of derivate from the path, as long as it's not completely left field.
1: <laughs> yeah. I I do have a different approach when I when I write choruses. Although, to be honest, like I get a lot of criticism from people saying my choruses are the weak points in my song, but I'm always trying to improve them. But I have a different attitude when I write choruses where it's maybe a bit more poetic and metaphorical. I'm not trying to necessarily come up with a punchline or a direct reference to anything. It's more about the mood and the feel or perhaps the, the subtext of what I think that person's story might be about. That's and, good. And then in the verses, I get far more explicit and specific about about certain uh, topics within it.
0: Have you, I know we're running long. I'll wrap it up in a sec, but what is, have you ever had any um, like gamer creators who or companies who reached out to you and were like, wow, that was fantastic. Thank you for that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it it happens uh quite often actually. Um and what's interesting is that uh, one of, one of the first times it happened was do you know the game Dishonored? I've heard of it. I've never played it. It was it was um a new franchise that came out, well, it was at the time um when I made the song about it and no one else had made any kind of fan content around it because it was mm. brand new. And so, and then I made this uh, this song about it. And because they had been working on it for like however many years game studios work on these triple A titles and they'd been you know been under a non disclosure agreement and they had no feedback or anything on the game whatsoever but apart from their own colleagues Mm. when they when they saw the this fan song that I'd done about it they they loved it so much and they invited me to come down and like uh, see them at this uh, event and I got a picture with the guys who developed the games and things and they were they were fanboying over me it was it was crazy that's (laughs) but obviously that that doesn't necessarily happen with uh, with you know when you're making a, a song about maybe again Call of Duty Twelve like they don't probably care very much it's because there's great. already a huge fan base around it.
0: Well, that's an that's an example. That's a great intersection of being first and like working with a smaller development company, right? Like that they were really it's like a reciprocated fandom. Yeah, which is kind of cool.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting as well. I think. Um, Carrying on from that, if I if I make music that is about like an, an indie title or something that's you know got a lot less money or backing behind it, and it's just a passion project of a game developer, if you make some fan content around that, they really they really appreciate that and it, they they feel validated by it because they've put work into it, they've put it out there in the world, and people are responding to it.
0: I'm sure in in a lot of ways, your channel is so big that you help with sales and stuff to a degree, I imagine.
1: I hope so because, I mean, I, I've done some various marketing uh, branded videos with games companies. So I guess they, if they want to hire somebody to make a video about their game, they're expecting that it will influence people to then buy that game. Otherwise, they're just giving me some money for nothing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it
0: is working. Yeah. That's cool. Um, your primary platform, would you say, is your YouTube channel?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to slowly change that a little bit because I just realized YouTube's so volatile, um I don't want to rely on it too much. Um so I'm I'm trying to expand now towards Twitch and um not even necessarily just platforms, but I want to go and do more events and things. I, I mentioned earlier I don't like really performing on stage life, but I love doing like fan meetups and events like that kind of thing. Um YouTube so YouTube is volatile in that it's like
0: Monetization is changing and it's more competitive. Or
1: yeah, and also, there's a, a new law that's just been put past called uh, Article 13. I don't know if you've heard much about yeah. it, but it's it's making uh, copyright protection a lot stricter online. I'm not exactly sure how it'll be enforced, but um, in my experience as a, as a DIY creator, copyright has usually been troublesome rather than helpful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's usually just put more barriers and obstacles. Um, Especially with things like content ID on YouTube, so many videos have been flagged in, uh, incorrectly, false positives, and things. Sure. So I'm not, I'm just not confident about the future of any single platform. So I want to make sure my, I, I'm on all sorts of platforms, N- and not only just me. That I want to to do a lot more collaborating and work with other artists. I used to work on my own in my bedroom for years, just making my own music, and I didn't want to collaborate or work with anyone else. Yeah. I wanted it to be proof that everything that you heard on that record came from me and I was quite egotistical about it mm-hmm. but and that that, that that is fun but it's also a lot more fun to you know meet up with someone else and get their perspective and, and you both chip in and bounce off each other i want to do a lot more of that kind of thing that's cool
0: yeah. and so so working with other artists using other platforms and just staying what positive creative person that got got you to this point those are those are all those three things will keep you successful
1: yeah, like um yeah. you you asked me about about what advice I'd give to someone and I think that's yeah. it. It's it's be, be adaptive and responsive and flexible, do something that you are genuinely passionate about. Don't just try and jump on a popular bandwagon. Um and make uh, I think it's more important that you enjoy it than that, that you necessarily get successful from it. Like there are downsides to being a full-time professional musician as well as upsides. rather than a hobbyist like hobbyists have a lot more creative freedom they don't have to worry about whether this next video is going to alienate the audience and not and they won't get the same paycheck they got the previous month they can do whatever they want right i'm not saying that it's that it's um better to necessarily be a hobbyist or that might that like the position i'm in is bad i absolutely love it but there are benefits to both of those positions that you're in
0: how do you stay in love with music then how do you stay like passionate
1: about music <laughs> i always have been and i yeah. just feel like i always will be like yeah. ever since i was a kid i just loved music i loved i i had a little um dictaphone which i used to record like weird voices and comedy sketches with my friends um and then that escalated we got a camcorder and did the same things always did music i just feel like it's it's just part of who I am, so I don't really worry about that. I don't really worry about oh, do I like music anymore, or will I like music in five, ten years? I just, I can't imagine getting to a point where it's not. That's that's not who I am. That's the jet fuel of all this. <laughs> yeah, you must be the same, right? It takes it takes a lot of commitment. Like you're on tour now, traveling around the world and stuff, which is obviously fun, but it's it's a big commitment.
0: Yeah, and if I weren't, that's interesting. You said that. if I weren't, like you know, this tour is celebration it's like a, i'm doing most of my my robot kills album which was like my second album and it's like playing there's a band from newcastle ruled by raptors they've learned my set and they've learned, learned the album so playing with a band playing these old songs with a different band is really fun because i always love doing love music but i especially love it when i'm able to like perform or do it in a different way like writing new music or collaborate collaborating with different people you know what i mean and I feel like I'll never get tired of that, and I'm thankful for that. But if I ever do, it's not the end of the world. I have other skills, but i, I and I don't fear that that will happen, but because I don't think it will, you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have that in common.
1: but you're right, it's not it's not like if you stop if you stop enjoying it, then all you need to do is just segue into a different career. You've probably picked up lots of skills through your career as a musician that you can then apply to something else.
0: And same with you too, yeah. right? It's like being organized, social media, marketing, collaborating. I think my strongest asset is I love to work with different people and the different people I've had on my records over the years, it's like impressive that they would say yes to do it. And, and, including you and people like you and people like, like Weird Al and and like this album I just did with MegaRan. Like I love being able to push myself in a new way working with different people. And that's fun because I love the friendships that come from this journey. You know, that's that's important. Because, you know, I was middle school and stuff. In high school, I was hard. I was lonely. And it was like, it was a weird time that discovering hip-hop and starting to collaborate, especially my time in England as an undergrad, you know, a sophomore year, I was here for part of sophomore year. It changed my world because I met all these people who were kind of like me.
1: Yeah. I I, I went to university and I didn't enjoy it. I I, I studied music technology at uni, but I still... Didn't enjoy it because I just, the, the, the other people still weren't like me. And the, the only time when I really found people that shared exactly the kind of approach and attitude I had was, was the internet. So the internet's been a huge help for me. Yeah. And I want to make sure that I kind of pay it forward now. And, and if there are other people that share those kind of interests and want to do the same kind of thing, I want to find out who they are and work with them.
0: So this space is super cool that, that wherever wherever you end up or whatever you do, you'll you'll be in that producer role, even like a managerial role in a way, right? Like managing
1: the projects in a way. I'm, a, I'm aware of the fact that I'm getting older as well and, that, and yeah. I won't always necessarily have the same alternate nerd coolness, let's say, or, or clout. Um, where, when I'm a middle-aged guy, I want to make sure that I'm still in this world, but I'm not desperately trying to cling on to something that, maybe would have been better served to me when I was younger.
0: Well and that's why guys like Dre and and even the tech like startup incubator people they they recognize that too I think and they want to work with the other
1: artists. And it's also cool. it's also as you progress uh, and reach different kind of parts of your life I think it's better to embrace them rather than trying to cling on to your youth and like sometimes you you see like a middle-aged 50 60 year old guy who still thinks he's a teenager like mm. he'll he'll have gone gray and he'll have dyed his hair completely black uh, and and I don't know like I don't want to judge people on appearances but it shows that they're kind of clinging to something that's not there anymore instead of going okay I'm 50 60 I can enjoy this part of my life by doing this kind of stuff
0: well that's a, that's a very profound like insight and I think that's me musically it's something that I've wrestled with like when I got my start it was all about like sampling the Pop punk bands and parroting the emo stuff and doing that and this and so then the second like part of my career was about doing like the literary rap or doing like the educational stuff and that <sighs> parroting this one subgenre of music that I liked or be was part of I couldn't do that forever because yeah. it wasn't as it wasn't as relevant as when I was in my twenties and you then I think some people. End up growing bitter about how times changed. If what they, you know what I'm saying. If what made them big doesn't keep them growing as much, so you have to be adaptive.
1: I don't want to be that guy. It's very easy to fall into that trap where you just complain that that um, the world is different to how it was when it it most benefited you. (laughs) Right. It's more reasonable that you need to change rather than that the entire world needs to change back to how it benefited you the most.
0: And that's what, like, going back to the gamification comment you made at the beginning of this podcast is like, well. You got to be flexible, and you got to feel realize how you are going to hack the next level as the, as so to speak, the world changes. You have to level up too, right? Yeah, it's a challenge. It's
1: an exciting challenge. So I want to make sure I am kind of looking out for the the next big shift in whether it's you know a new platform that people use or a new type of content that exists. Like I am really interested in uh, technologies like VR and um, neural networks, and and one thing that's that really interests me that I, that I haven't seen much of yet, but Computers are now learning how to be creative. Like, they can apply Mm. artistic styles from a painting onto a picture. And that is also slowly seeping into music. And I'm really interested in seeing how computers end up being creative with music. And that is an entirely new world that, like, I don't know anything about yet, but I'm really excited to look into.
0: And then, that's interesting, curating a, a project a computer does that then gives it a human element based on how you've edited or selected Pieces it's graded. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah,
1: I already do quite a bit of that with like I've got an app on my phone called Pixar, which is which transfers uh, styles, artistic styles to pictures, and stuff. so I'm always messing with that. And and you can choose like different. Um, I don't know the proper names of the artistic styles, but you've got like Renaissance painting style and anime style, and and it it, it it's not just a filter that goes over the top of the picture; it, it recreates that picture in that style. Wow, it's crazy, and wow. I, I'm just I I get giddy with excitement when I think of how, you, how when AI gets more advanced how it can apply that to music like you could import a Beatles song and say to the computer import the Beatles song um, but play it in the style of Nirvana right. and the computer will take the tone and the sound of that of Nirvana and apply it to the chords and the melodies of the Beatles and it'll do it all automatically that like I get goosebumps when I think about that kind of thing other people might get scared of it and say it's going to take the human element out of creativity There will always be a human element, though, as long as there are humans.
0: Yeah, and humans either creating or appreciating it, right? When something is so digital, what it reflects about humanity has more of a pure essence, I guess. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) I think
1: there's always there there will always be Luddites who are scared of new technology and changes and things, but there will also always be people working out how to get creative and experimental with it. I want to be on that side.
0: And that's uh, why it's cool we were born when we were, right? Living in these times. Yeah, yeah. What um? So Dan, what it's it's Dan Bull on Twitter. Is that
1: yep. Where people sh- can follow you there. Yep, it's a, a I did it intentionally as a pun on Istanbul, but people don't realize that you don't. Uh, there are so many people. I right, just got. It. I didn't know <laughs> that. Yeah, <laughs> there are so many people that go, uh, "Oh, your name sounds like Istanbul in t- in Turkey," or they or they'll say Istanbul, not Constantinople. I'm like, that that was the joke. <laughs> I I'm starting to regret this pun now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the same on Instagram, right? It's not the same. It's not the same. Uh, I wish it was. uh, So I was late to Instagram because I I basically sulked because someone else had taken that name. Um, But then I I ended up giving it and created one. But it's Istanbul. So I N S D A N B U L L. So that's a pun on a pun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then um, your YouTube channel is just Dan Bull. Easy to
1: find. Yeah. If you open YouTube and type my name in, it should. Hopefully, if YouTube's doing its job... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> My videos should come up and, and not reaction videos or <laughs> anything else.
0: So that's good. Well, hopefully they will. Then you'll continue to give them more content. And um, hopefully we'll – be. are you coming to the show tonight just to hang out at least? Or
1: I may do. I okay. may do. Again, it's uh, the, the parent side of me needs to go and, and work out what I can do. I'm also not very well, so we'll see. You're, we'll see what happens. I'd love to come and see you, though. You're invited, though, but
0: I totally understand if you can't make it. Yeah, yeah. This has been great. Thank you, Dan.
1: I was about to say you need to you need to plug where your show's gonna be, but this is not a live <laughs>
0: there's not Some much time. Th- well it was at Sunflower Lounge in Birmingham, the first time we played there and show was great. Hey <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hopefully it was great. Hopefully I'm still alive. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh no, okay. this could be awkward. Okay. Well thank you, Dan. Thank you. <laughs>
0: called this pig by matron's apron you can find it on dan bull's channel that was his first band he talked about and one of the members is now a philosophy professor at oxford so they don't tour so much but i thought that was cool to end with that it's a vegan anthem so dan thank you very much oh shoot you know what we have right now yeah get ready for it this is the first incarnation of the patreon fan of the week. the week we got malachi this is a dude from missouri He's been a fan for a long time, supportive guy. I met him years ago on the MC Chris tour, and he calls in and tells one of his stories. So Malachi, take it away.
2: All right. Hey, yo, Lars. This is Malachi. The first song I ever heard of yours was Original Gamer. A year after that, I'd gotten my diagnosis for the brain tumor, and a couple months after that, I was at your first concert, but when I emailed you, you would email me right back. And when I met you face to face for the very first time, you gave me the biggest hug and you asked me how my health was. And every concert I saw you after that, you always asked me how my health was. You have no idea how much Your music has helped me grow and get inspiration and strength where I didn't have it or I didn't think I have it or had it where I needed it and when I needed it. Your music has helped me find bravery and courage and I am so grateful that you even took the time to email me back when I was in the hospital, scared out of my life, getting testing done. You have become one of the biggest, biggest influences in my life, homie. And I am so grateful. I'm so grateful for that day my best friend walked into my house and I have the song by this dude, MC Lars. Original gamer, you need to hear since you are a gamer yourself. If it was not for him, I would not have the friendship I have in you. Thank you for your time, homie. Much clam love. Woo, woo.
0: Woo, woo. Back to you, Malachi. That's a very touching story. And I do remember that. And I'm glad you're doing well. So everyone listening, Malachi is cancer-free. And uh, whenever he rolls through the show, he's always such a big, inspiring dude. So Malachi, yo, you get a free shirt, I'm going to send you one ASAP. If you want to be on the podcast and tell a story of how you discovered my music or a concert or something like that, sign up on the Patreon. We will hook it up. You get the special phone number. You get the free t-shirt if I uh, use your call. And uh, that is awesome. We are going to end with a little snippet. Like I said, there are... Tons and tons of songs on Patreon that you get access to. This is a song that I did with Tribe One. It's called Cautiously Optimistic for Ninja Turtles 2. I'm just going to play a snippet of it. I want to give you an example of the type of songs you'll hear. We wrote this when Out of the Shadows came out, or was about to come out, which was the sequel to the Michael Bay Ninja Turtles. And we kind of battle about if it's going to be good or not. So it's uh, so one of the songs you'll check out. Next week, we got Matt Sancom, who started The Hard Times, which is a very funny, awesome song humor site. He's a Bay Area dude. I went up and saw him in Pacifica when I was in California. And uh, so tune in next week. But here's a snippet of one of the jams on Patreon. Thanks, Dan, for being on the episode. And I will see y'all. Next week Hope you're all having a good summer Okay, peace, bye
2: Now I'm a fan of Ninja Turtles Just it's not uninspired inspired remakes Especially when the source material Really could be great And ten bucks a pop Is not exactly a cheap date Unless they're offering back a rebate And if it's a box office flop they'll stop with this awful business Cause you've always got the option Not to go cop the tickets I'll wait to hear if it's good And if not Then I'll probably skip it I honestly want it to be But I'm cautiously optimistic I'm
0: VHS and DVD And Blu-ray Yes, it's true why about Ninja Turtles 1? Why about Ninja Turtles 2? Why about Ninja Turtles 3? Where they traveled to Japan. A disappointing sequel for the critics and the fans, but out of the shadows. It's looking hella rad though. Rock is back with Bebop. Ready for the battle with Crankfredder and Baxter. Well, the previews are incredible. I'm camping out I'm first in line, I hope it's unforgettable. Cautiously optimistic for Ninja Turtles 2. Cautiously optimistic for Ninja Turtles 2. Cautiously optimistic your turtles too
2: cautiously I'm-